Well, we're in Acts chapter 23, and so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 23. We've been looking through the book of Acts for the last couple of years, and uh, and this is, uh, we're kind of down to the last seven or eight sermons in this uh, in this book, and and Paul has been arrested. Uh, he is about to make his second defense. This is the second of five defenses that Paul will make, uh, where he is defending himself before uh, the the Jewish um, high council today. Uh, last week he was before the Jerusalem mob that tried to beat him to death, uh, and then next week's sermon he will give his defense before Felix, the governor before Festus in chapter 25, and then before Herod Agrippa II in chapter 26, and then he'll make his way to Rome, where we uh, the book of Acts ends, and we don't know if he ever was able to make his appeal and his defense before Caesar. But it's important for us to acknowledge that Paul's, um, whenever Paul stands up to defend himself, He's not trying to save his skin, right? He's not trying to get himself out of a legal jam. He's not trying to get himself out of uh, martyrdom or anything like that. Paul's primary aim in each of these defenses is that he can make the gospel known to those who are accusing him. His hope is in the resurrection of Jesus, and for that he is on trial. This particular chapter, um, let me just kind of set it up this way. Uh, There are plenty of places in the book of Acts where we see Paul at his absolute best. Uh, Just Paul filled with the Spirit. Think about um, Paul in Ephesus where he preaches in the hall of Tyrannus for two years every single day. And and it is just a a miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit um, there in Ephesus. We see Paul there at his absolute best, functioning at his highest. Uh, think about Paul and Silas and Philippi when they've been arrested um, and and they are getting beaten and they're in jail and and how do they respond to that? They're they're singing hymns uh, into the night and an earthquake uh, looses all their chains and before they're able to go free, the jailer um, is about to take his own life as a result of these prisoners that he thought were free. Uh, he comes and falls before Paul and Silas and he says, "What must I do to be saved?" Right? This is. Paul operating at his absolute best. We see that all throughout the book of Acts. We see these really good highlights in Paul's life. But we also have a view into Paul's humanity at a few key places. And I think that today is a demonstration of maybe one of those weaker places in the Apostle Paul's life. There are some things in this passage that are a little bit um, perplexing. Paul seems to be on a, a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Uh, you're going to see in the second defense that, that in one second Paul is composed and he's making his defense. And then in the next moment he lashes out in anger at the high priest. And then a moment later he's filled with remorse and regret. And, and then he's going to manipulate the crowd and then he's saved again from mob violence by the Romans. This passage, I think, reflects insight, a view into a low point in Paul's uh, personal life. It made me wonder if we, you know, have you ever had a a low point in your life? Maybe a a time when you just didn't feel like you were at your best. A moment of weakness. A time when you were tempted to rely on your own cunning and craftiness and humanity and your own flesh. Maybe you neglected to walk by the Spirit. Maybe you walk in your flesh for a time. Proverbs 3, 5-6 through 6 tells us to trust in the Lord with all our heart and not to lean on our own understanding. 
but in all our ways acknowledge Him and He will make our path straight. And this seems to be a point in Paul's life and ministry where maybe he's leaning on his own strength and humanity a little bit. Of course, I'm just observing that and speculating a little bit about Paul here. Um, And I don't fault him for this. I mean, think about what Paul's been through. He's just lived through another near-death experience as the mob drug him out of the temple complex and began to beat him to death. And and, um, in the midst of that, he had to be rescued by what Jews considered to be the enemy, the Roman military, from his own people. Uh, Then he narrowly avoided being scourged by the Roman guards. He's just been rejected by the people he once walked among, the people that he felt the most comfortable with, the people that he had uh, an in with before his conversion. They rejected him over and over again. And so it's okay that he was in a weakened place. I don't fault him one bit in the same way that we don't fault each other when we have moments like this. But if you've ever felt weak and helpless, confused, vulnerable, maybe taken aback by a trial or a period in your life where you just didn't realize that this is what you were going to walk through, I think you're going to find some hope in this passage if you can hang on till the end here. Because we often see in Scripture that when we're the weakest, the Lord often visits us and refreshes us. You remember when Paul was in Corinth after he had experienced the trials in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and then he was in Athens, and place after place after place where he had been physically beat up and emotionally beat up and spiritually beat up. When he got to Corinth, the Lord said, rest easy, right? I have many people in the city and no one's going to hurt you. And it says that Paul enjoyed this 18-month period of fruitfulness and rest in Corinth. Oftentimes when we're at our weakest and when we're the most helpless and confused and vulnerable, uh, it's, it's there that we see the strength of the Lord shining uh, through. And I think you're going to see that here in this text. Uh, so let's work through the passage. We're going to look at um, verses uh, 22, chapter 22, verse 30, and we're going to try to get all the way through 23, 35. So just for some context, chapter 22, verse 30 says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, um, the Roman tribune unbound him, and he commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down, and he set him before them. So if, if, you're, if, you, if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, uh, right away we're brought back into the story that, that we've been covering over the last two weeks in sermons. Paul had arrived in Jerusalem. He had given a report to the half-brother of Jesus, James, the, the pastor of the, the, the church in Jerusalem and the elders there. He had given them the, the gift to ease the poverty uh, of those suffering in Judea. And, uh, and he took a purity vow so that they could demonstrate that he was still a faithful uh, Jewish um, observer. He observed faithfully the, uh, the laws of Moses, and he wasn't in any way um, violating his conscience. And then he spent about a week in and around the temple before a few Asian Jews recognized him. And they had previously seen him in the city with a guy named Trophimus, who was a Greek. And, and so they assumed that Paul 
had brought this Greek into the temple. And so this, this mob surrounded Paul. They grabbed him. Uh, they drug him out of the temple grounds. Uh, they closed the temple complex completely. And then they began to beat him to death. And when the Roman guards saw that everything was breaking loose, they dispatched, you know, the, the riot team or whatever and, and, um, saved Paul. Uh, and then right before they brought him into the barracks, they, they asked, uh, Paul said, can I speak to the crowd? And, and the, the, the tribune asked him, aren't you the, that Egyptian assassin, right? And he said, no, I'm, I'm from uh, Tarsus in Cilicia, and, um, and, and I'm a Jew. And, and he said, um, yeah, okay, you can address the crowd. And so Paul begins to share his story. He begins to share uh, how he was just like them. This was last week's sermon. He, he, he was, shared his testimony about how he saw the glory of the Lord on the Damascus Road, and it, it changed everything. And Paul had this 180-degree turn, and he described his conversion. He described Ananias laying hands on him and baptizing him. And he described all that to them. And and they were captivated by Paul's story. They listened to every word he said until he got to the point where he said, a, a few years later, I was praying in the temple. And while I was in the temple, the Lord said, get out of Jerusalem. They're not going to accept your testimony about me. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And this struck a nationalistic nerve in these Jewish believers. This was last week's message about, uh, touched on Christian nationalism and its dangers, but, but when they heard that he was going to the Gentiles, they immediately turned violent again. And so the Roman guards grab him, they, they get him into custody, and then they stretch him out to scourge him. Um, and as they're about to scourge him, Paul says, hey, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. I don't know if it's lawful for you to do this or not, knowing it wasn't lawful for them to scourge a Roman citizen. And so the tribune, um, they become uh, a little bit afraid because they've already violated Paul's rights as a citizen. And so they order the Jewish high council to meet the very next day. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 23, verse 1, Paul begins his defense. Look at chapter 23, verse 1. It says, Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to smack him on the mouth, right? Um, this is such an unusual turn of events immediately uh, in the middle of his council. Paul was basically just saying, I've been a, a loyal and faithful Jew. I've not violated the, my conscience. I've not violated the laws of Moses. And, and I've not been um, unlawful as a follower of Jesus. He's not saying that he wasn't guilty. He's just saying that my conscience is completely clear. And that's something that really only a Christ follower can say. Um, Jesus forgives us of our sins, and he washes us completely free of all of our guilt, right? First John 1, 9, you know this verse very well. Uh, that, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Paul has a cleansed conscience, not that he's sinless, but he is declaring his innocence, both in what they charged him with, that is taking Trophimus into the temple, but he's also declaring um, that he's innocent of any of the charges that they're bringing before him. And because of that, this high priest, in response to his declaration of innocence, this high priest who is convinced that Paul is absolutely guilty and a troublemaker, orders that he be punched in the mouth. Somebody near him hits him, um, 
Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about Ananias. Um, the high priest was the highest position that a person could hold in Israel. You had to be a Levite. You had to be uh, of the family of Aaron. Uh, you had to be a priest. And this person had incredible responsibilities and incredible um, influence. Uh, you know the story that once a year the high priest would, would have to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And so only once a year they would take the, the blood of an innocent lamb into not just the holy place, but the most holy place, that inner compartment of the temple where the, the presence of God hovered above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And only once a year could the, the high priest go into that inner uh, most holy place and provide atonement for the sins of the nation. It was a huge responsibility, uh, but it also carried with it incredible influence. And, and over time, it grew to be a position of power, political power, and a position of influence with um, less piety and less personal holiness. Josephus and other historians describe some of the abuses that took place of the priests. And if you're um, curious about that, you can read the book of Malachi. Malachi has... Uh, even 400 years before this, had scathing um, um, uh, criticism against the priests. And there are even historical records about this particular high priest, Ananias. Uh, Tony Morita, in his commentary, notes that according to historical records, Ananias was known for greed, for a quick temper, for violence, and for holding pro-Roman sentiments. He continues saying, Ananias thought that Paul was a wicked man. He thought that he was a troublemaker. But because Paul wouldn't admit to any guilt, he had him hit in the face. Paul said to him in verse 3, in his response to being hit in the mouth, Paul said, God is going to strike you down, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So here we see Paul uh, losing his cool a little bit. He, he gets hit in the mouth and he reacts. And now to be fair, the high priest is in violation of the law. Leviticus 19.15 says that you shall do no injustice in court. And so in violation of that law, when Ananias lost his temper and had Paul smacked, Paul retaliates by quoting Scripture. And then he verbally lashes out at him, calling him a whitewashed wall. In verse 4, those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And this is where things get a little confusing. Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That's a quote from Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. So we have this kind of legal... Um, you know, sword fight going on right here where they're quoting Scripture and, and, and Paul's quoting it right back at them. And, and so this is a, sort of a test of their knowledge while they're also sort of losing their composure a little bit. And so the question often comes up, but how did Paul not know who the, the high priest was? Um, this would be like you not knowing um, who the President of the United States is or, or more important. Uh, there are a couple of different theories that, that, um, that theologians have tried to pass over the last couple of years. One is called the sincerity view. And the sincerity view says that Paul really just didn't know who Ananias was for a variety of reasons. Either because he wasn't dressed in his high priestly gear, right? They had to wear this ephod with all these stones on it. And, and it was kind of a pomp 
um, and circumstance sort of gear that he would normally be dressed in, but because this was an impromptu meeting, Paul didn't recognize him. That's one reason. A second reason might be that uh, Paul because of the mob of the 70 or so people in this council, didn't know who gave the order. Somebody just shouted out, you know, hit him. And so, so he got hit, and so he didn't know who it was. Uh, that was one idea. But another one is that uh, Paul might have had this eyesight issue. You remember in one of his letters, he said that, uh, that you stuck with me during my trials, and, and if you could, I know that you would have gouged out your eyes. And, and in 2 Corinthians 14, it says that um, you know Paul had uh, this weakness and this thorn in his flesh, and some people have speculated that it might have been an eyesight thing. Maybe Paul couldn't see, right? I, I just got my eyes tested, and um, you're all just a blur right now. But, but when I when I, I put my glasses on, I can see clearly. So, so maybe Paul lived with this sort of blurry eyesight. We know that he was blinded in his conversion for three days and had to be led by the hand, and, and the Lord restored some of his sight. So that's one theory. Another one might have just been that Paul was away from Jerusalem for the last 15, 20 years, and so maybe he just really didn't know who he was. So that's the sincerity view. The one I kind of like is, is more of like the sarcasm view, that, that Paul might be saying... Oh, I didn't know that that was the high priest because of the way he just had me hit in the mouth, right? Um, Paul might have been just being a little bit more sarcastic in that way. And, uh, and so whatever view you like, um, uh, Paul's knowledge of Ananias, after he lashes out, of, he, he quickly expresses some remorse. Maybe he really felt bad that he cursed the high priest and, and it pinged his conscience because of Exodus 22. We're not really sure, but now Paul pivots and he can feel that the counsel and his defense, it's not gotten off to a really good start, right? Anytime you're punched after your first sentence and then you snap back and then they snap back and nothing's going well. So, so he tries another tactic and that is to divide the crowd. Look at verses six through 10. So now when Paul perceived that one part of the council were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees uh, party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. This is the third time, by the way, in the 24-hour period that violence has broken out against Paul. Have you ever had someone acting violent toward you? This is three times in a 24-hour period that Paul's physical life has been threatened. And so, sensing that things were going off the rails, he divides the crowd by appealing to something that half of them believed and half of them didn't. The Pharisees were very spiritual. Uh, They... um, They believed in angels, they believed in the afterlife, but the Sadducees, um, think about them more in terms of a liberal political party. They denied everything supernatural. As a matter of fact, they only accepted a few books of the Old Testament as legitimate, and they denied all the miracles and those kinds of things. And so when Paul saw that that the crowd was divided between Pharisees and Sadducees, he attempted to divide them and it worked. 
They get into an argument among themselves, and, and he actually wins over some of them, and they say, we don't see anything wrong with this guy. So things turn violent. Paul is rescued again. He's escorted back to the barracks. And as he's sitting in his cell, you know, have you ever gotten into an argument and you replay what you should have said, right? A week later, you're like, oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. Everything all right? All right. Make sure I heard that as well. If, if no one else heard that, I was going to be a little bit, a little bit concerned. Just going to try to work through it. But uh... all right, we don't have any tornadoes or anything coming. All right, good. <laughs> all right. So at this point, Paul's in a cell. Uh, he's replaying. All the shoulda, coulda, woulda, you know, I don't know if you've ever done that. You get a, the perfect comeback like eight days later and you're like, oh, can we just replay that one part? Uh, because I have a really good singer for you. But, but Paul's back there uh, and, and maybe at this point he's feeling like a failure. Maybe he's disappointed uh, by the way things went. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he was discouraged. But this definitely reflects a bit of a low point. He's He's been high and low, high and low, assaulted, abused, maybe his lip is swelling. All these things have gone wrong for him, but he's definitely discouraged. So I want you to see what happens, because I think verse 11 becomes the focal point for us in this passage. Verse 11 says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And this is the highlight of our passage where I want us to focus our time. I don't, how many of you have one of those red letter Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red? In that Bible are your words in red right here? You see that all over, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where it's a translator's choice, right? Jesus didn't, it wasn't written down in red and the, the scribes weren't switching back and forth. At some point, scribes and translating committees decided, hey, we want the words of Jesus to stand out. And so you're, you're used to that if you've got one of those red-letter Bibles. Mine are all black text everywhere. Um, and, and, and yet, in these red-letter ones, you, you see it all over the Gospels. But, but when you get into Acts, you don't, you don't see those red letters a lot. I think it's probably been several chapters since, since you may have seen these red letters if you have one of those Bibles. But... But right here, this verse sticks out for that reason. Not just for that reason, but also because Paul at his lowest point, the Lord comes and visits him. It says he stood by him. The Lord Jesus comes into the cell and stands before Paul. He could have sent an angel, right? Everything all right? We're getting uh, all kind of, Must be a really good point if all this distraction is coming into the room. Um, <laughs> Paul, in one of these weak moments when his humanity is on full display and things aren't going well, Jesus comes and encourages him himself. He could have given him a dream. He could have sent an angel. He could have just spoken to him through a vision or something. He even could have sent another person to, to visit Paul in prison. Charles Spurgeon, when he preached on this passage, told a story about John Bunyan being in prison for 20 years, and he is visited after he'd been in prison for a number of years, 
And his friend visits him and he says, the Lord Jesus told me to come and encourage you and it's taken me all these years to find out which prison you were in. And, and so when I finally found out, I was able to come. And, and John Bunyan's reply was, Jesus knew where I was. I mean, you know, it must not have been Jesus who told you because he knew I was here all along. Um, Jesus knew where Paul was. And he immediately comes to him personally. And it says that he stood by him. R.C. Sproul says that translation word, stood, is weak. He said the Greek words indicate that Jesus came and in a sense overshadowed Paul, that his presence was enormous. There was Paul cringing in a cell, and suddenly the risen Christ comes and hovers over him and tells him to be of good cheer. The Latin translation uses a word that is the foundation for this English word that we know of as constancy. Jesus wasn't just glibly saying, hey, cheer up. Jesus was saying, Paul, be constant, be consistent, stay with the ministry that you've had through all these years, day in and day out. Sproul continues saying, this is a message I think we all need to hear, that this is how Jesus encouraged his apostle. If anybody had ever been constant in ministry from the day he was called, it was Paul. And yet Jesus had to come to him personally to shore him up. I remember when we uh, were just about to plant Ridgeline, uh, we had this um, sort of event in our family life where uh, one, of our, uh, one of our kids had this experience where uh, they uh, stopped participating in family worship for a couple of months. And um, as we're working toward planting the church, living in Hatboro, and uh, making plans to take this big step of faith, um, this seven, eight-year-old child at the time um, finally one day confessed to Julie and said, there's a reason why I've withdrawn. It's, um, it's because um, at night, um, Satan has come to me, and or she said, Allah has come to me, and he said that I could become one of his daughters if I'll, if I'll just follow him. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll become one of Allah's daughters. And by the way, this is a very sheltered, homeschooled seven-year-old. Um, and so at that time, uh, this just devastated Julie and I. It was one of those kind of rare moments in your marriage, your life, where you look back and you think, oh, that moment, how did we get through that? She called, come home right away. I came home. We, she told me what happened. Lunchtime, we got on our knees in our bedroom and just began to pray. And, and, and through that period, it was one of the most devastating days in my faith life where I just didn't know how I was going to go forward, really. Um, and I just said, Lord, I'm done. I mean, if this is, you know, as a man, as a husband and a father, bring on whatever, but bring it on to me. But don't attack, don't let my seven-year-old daughter, you know, get attacked in this way. And, and it was just one of those trials where I was, I was just ready to be done, you know, with ministry after that. And, and I'll never forget, over the next three or four hours, just half a dozen Close, close friends began to call and text. Hey, the Lord put you on my heart. What's, what's going on? Hey, the Lord put this word on my heart. Be of good courage. Stay in, you know. Uh, remain with me. All these verses about abiding and being strengthened. It was as though the Lord wanted me to be encouraged in the middle of one of those weak, weak moments. This is my best illustration of what Paul might have been feeling and going through here in this Roman cell. 
when God comes to him and Jesus, his presence overwhelms him and he encourages him to keep going. Hey, what you've been doing, you've been testifying about me. But also the Lord tells him what's coming. He says, just in the way that you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This gives Paul something to look forward to. He's, he's not going to die in some Roman barrack in Jerusalem. He's not going to die in Caesarea while Felix and Festus are you know, bickering back and forth. He's not going to die on a shipwreck on, on the way. He's not going to get die from a serpent bite that comes out of a fire and snatches to his... Paul knows he's going to make it to Rome. And if it's five years, if it's ten years, if it's twenty years... The Lord has told him, he's he's given him a purpose for the remainder of his time. You are going to testify about me in Rome. And this, this does something for Paul. He's always wanted to go to Rome. He wrote to the Roman believers in in chapter 1 of the book of Romans. First, I thank God through Jesus for all of you because um, your faith is proclaimed around the world. And and God is my witness who I I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his sons that I, without ceasing, I pray for you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we can mutually encourage each other. Uh, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. You see how Paul had yearned to go to Rome, and and then all of a sudden, as, as he's at this low point in his life, Jesus comes into his cell and he says, Take courage. I'm here with you, and 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 you're going to make it to Rome. And it encouraged him. At one of the lowest points in his life, Jesus himself came and encouraged him. I'm just going to read um, the next few verses uh, through uh, the rest of 23, and, and then we'll close. After that... Verse 12, when it was the day, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and they bound themselves by an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 of them who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we're ready to kill him before he comes near. Listen, those are inescapable odds. Forty assassins who have basically laid their life on the line say, we're not going to eat and we're not going to drink until Paul is six feet under. We're going to kill him and we're going to do it tomorrow. And we're not going to eat and drink until the job is done. And yet the Lord had promised Paul that you're going to make it to Rome. And so God knows how to rescue him from these insurmountable odds. And look how he does it. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister, that is his nephew, heard of their ambush. And so he went in and he entered the barracks and he told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him. Uh, So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand 
And going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring down Paul to the council tomorrow, as though they're going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And then he called two of the centurions and he said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and uh, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So at midnight, 470 armed Roman soldiers are going to escort Paul. Those are odds that I could live with, right? 40 assassins who aren't going to eat or drink until they've killed me, or 470 Roman soldiers. Verse uh, 24, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. See, when the Lord makes a promise to Paul, he's going to see it through in spite of these assassins, in spite of their pledges, in spite of their oath to kill Paul. The Lord almost makes Rome, and he does, he makes these Roman soldiers give Paul some sort of favor and protection. And then he writes a letter. In verse 26, uh, the tribune says, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. You know, he got the order wrong. He learned he was a Roman citizen after that. But he, you know, when you're writing your boss, Felix, you want you want it to sound good. Verse 28, desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I, I brought him down to their council, and I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what, what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him, meaning they were so safe that not all 470 had to go all the way to Caesarea. They just went the 13 miles to Antipatris. And once they were fully protected, the next day they went to Caesarea. They delivered the letter to the governor. They present Paul before him. And verse 34, on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So once again, you see that God preserves Paul's life. I don't know if you've ever had a near-death experience. Um, my latest, I haven't had a lot, but one I had was in, in Hatboro. Again, in Hatboro, I don't know what it is about Hatboro. But um, but I was rolling down 611, and, and, and right there where a township line crosses 611, um, I, I was a, there was a green light, and, and I just stopped at it. I don't know why I stopped at it, but the second I stopped at it, a car going about 65 miles per hour barreled through the light there by that um, that. Uh, meeting house and fire station and would have completely smashed into my driver's side door. And I have no explanation other than I was like, all right, thank you, Lord. I could have, you know, this day could have gone totally different as a result of that. But Paul has had like five near-death experiences just in the last few chapters. 
of Acts here. And he's going to have a few more before we finish the book. But he's walking with this confidence that God is protecting him and that he has a purpose. He's about to make his third defense, and we're going to cover that next week. But just in closing, what should we do with this text today? What should you do in response to this passage? As I've reflected on it, I think the most important thing in this text is that Jesus came and encouraged Paul. I think we can all be encouraged by that. Jesus doesn't just stand in your place at the cross and then you're kind of on your own for the rest of your Christian life. The grace that saves you is the same measure of grace that sustains you. Jesus stands with his disciples throughout their life. In the passage that we call the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. The presence of Jesus is what distinguishes you as a Christ follower. It's not your own righteousness. It's not your own goodness. It's not your own holiness or morality. If you're known as a Christ follower, it's because of the presence of Jesus in your life. It's his nearness. It's the fact that he hasn't forgotten you or forsaken you. That he's faithful to you. Even when you go through low points in life, like Paul, maybe at this particular time, When you go through low points in your life, know that he has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten you. He's not trying to find you somewhere. I think we can be encouraged by the fact that the Lord Jesus himself came and stood with Paul and he encouraged him. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. When Zion complained, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me, the people of Jerusalem had said, the Lord is is gone, he's forgotten us. Isaiah is told to prophesy, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even though she may forget, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are always before me. So be encouraged today that the Lord Jesus has not forgotten you, no matter what you're going through, no matter what trial you're experiencing. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that your word tells us, one of the most often repeated verses in the Bible is that the Lord, the Lord is faithful and steadfast, abounding in grace and loving mercy. And we thank you that in your grace, You not only remember us, but you encourage us and you strengthen us. It's my prayer today and has been this week that if there are those here today who are discouraged, maybe they're going through trials and difficulties and they, they just feel like you've forgotten them, that you don't know where they are. And it's my prayer that they would be encouraged that you refresh and encourage believers with your presence and your nearness. There may be other people here today who are not yet believers. They've not yet placed their faith and trust in you, and and they only know about this in theory, but they've never experienced the joy of experiencing your presence in the middle of trials. I pray, Jesus, that if those who don't know you yet have never experienced your nearness, that you would draw near to them today, that they might place their faith and trust in you, that you might draw near to them and give them an overwhelming sense of peace and joy as a result of their sins being forgiven because you died on the cross for them. 
We thank you for the time that we've had to consider your word. And we pray that you would use it to strengthen your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.